Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. This week, we welcome into our studio Richard Dawkins. Hello, Richard. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Now, what does hygge, coolrophobia and adulting have in common? They made the shortlist for the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. The word that won, though, was post-truth. It's defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. No better illustration of that, perhaps, than an interview with an American politician, Newt Gingrich. But hold on, uh, Mr. Speaker, because you're saying liberals use these numbers, they use this sort of sure. magic math. This is uh, the FBI statistics. They're not a liberal organization. No, They're but what I said is equally true. People feel, feel more threatened. Yes, they feel it, but the facts don't support Fine. it. As a, as a political ca- candidate, I'll go with how people feel, and I'll let you go with the theoreticians. And it's a sentiment that was referred to in a political fight in Great Britain by the British politician Michael Gove. So there's a... So there's and, a the people, and the people... The people who are arguing that we should get out are concerned to ensure that the working people of this country at last get a fair deal. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts. From organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. Nonetheless, many are arguing for the claims of science, reason and objective truth in policymaking, including the physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. The only hope of a working democracy is to base laws and legislation on objective truths. And science and its methods and tools is the best way we have ever come up with to establish what is objectively true in this world. But can science really provide us with an objective truth? Aren't those facts found by people who are fallible with their own values and viewpoints necessarily going to reflect those? And anyway, why should science be the only source of truth? With me to discuss all of that is Richard Dawkins, one of the world's best-known evolutionary biologists, with a reach far beyond his subject. He has over 2.4 million Twitter followers. So some of them will be following you uh, today, Richard, on the show. I do find something almost sacred about scientific truth. It is the only way we know what's true about the real world. Of course, it's not the case that we need science to know what's moral or what's ethical or what our rights are. But as far as truth about the real world is concerned, objective scientific truth in the broadest sense is the only thing we have. You've just published a new book, Science in the Soul, that argues, and I think you've just put it in a, in a nutshell for us there, the importance of the scientific way of thinking, particularly in what many people call the post-truth world, which some might say just means that they're not getting their own way in the argument. Yes. The book is much more than that. It's a collection of essays which go back a number of years, many of them not previously published everywhere. But yes, there is, I suppose, an overarching theme, which is the, the value of objective truth as opposed to truthiness or post-truth. 
Well, with this beady eye on you as you're introducing your subject is our Jan Piotrowski correspondent here at The Economist, currently dealing with the environment, but with a big backpack of science and scientific philosophy. Hello, Jan. Morning. So Richard is going to talk about objective truth. How would you lay out the problem for him? Well, first of all, uh, Richard, would you like to define what exactly you would mean by objective truth? It's the kind of truth which lets me know and you know that there is a table in front of us. We don't need to get all philosophical about it. We, we accept that this is the kind of truth that everybody understands. And how do you ascertain it? Well, partly by observation, partly by experiment and by a rational, logical deduction which is the scientific method. Of course, you don't actually need to do scientific experiments all the time in order to establish what's true. We go through life all the time seeing things and knowing what, what is true about them. But there are some things where we really do need the scientific method, which is set up in such a way as to avoid confusion, as to avoid bias and all sorts of things like that. If scientific method is so fail-safe, if it's the, the best thing that, that we can get to, whether it's to establish the presence of the table or something a bit more complicated, why do you think it proves to be so fallible in communicating itself to people? Why is it so much in doubt now? Well, unfortunately, the scientific method isn't infallible. I mean, scientists make mistakes. Some, a few of them even cheat, and, and we have to sort of police that. But the scientific method is set up in such a way as to make cheating very difficult, as to make self-deception very difficult. Science has methods in play which force a scientist not to be biased in a way that inevitably somebody is going to be biased, especially in medical research, for example, where you're testing, say, a a new drug against a a placebo control. The double-blind technique, which is now universally used in medical research, is where neither the doctor and the experimenter nor the nurse nor the patient knows whether they're getting the drug or the placebo so that there's no possibility of the scientist biasing the results or anybody biasing the results in the way that they want or even the way they don't want because scientists are sometimes so scrupulous that they'll be biased against their pet hypothesis. The double-blind control trial makes it impossible to be biased in that way. So these methods are in place. But nevertheless, there is fallibility in science, and that's why sometimes you read in the Daily Mail, so-and-so causes cancer, and then the next day you read the same thing, cures cancer. So, Jan. You you mentioned the word scrupulous and um, the notion that scientists believe themselves to be fallible, which is certainly true. In fact, most of them espouse a sort of philosophy of science, perhaps you could call it a version of naive falsificationism. In other words, they believe that only statements which could in principle be shown to be untrue are scientific. If something cannot be shown to be untrue, it is not scientific by definition. Philosophers of science have debated this question for 100 years, so we won't go into it, uh, into it here. But the problem that arises, and it seems to have reared its head again in the public domain now, is that this forces scientists very rightly, to be very careful about their statements and to admit to certain uncertainty on their part about their results. Do you get the impression that this scientific method, this onus on uncertainty, 
is being used against the scientific method. That's a very good point, yes. I mean, the falsifiability criterion is why I was careful to say in, in, originally, we both know there's a table in front of us. Nobody bothers to say, oh, well, it's a hypothesis that hasn't yet been falsified that there's a table in front of us. But you're right that the, this, this sort of hyper-cautious uh, scientific approach can give a misleading impression to the public who, who hear scientists being cautious and they say something like, oh, well, scientists aren't sure, therefore. Scientists aren't sure. Indeed, one of the virtues of science is that we're not sure. I mean, not, not, not being sure is in, in a way a happy position for a scientist to be in because it means that there's work to do. Can I just bring up something which we talk about a lot when it comes uh, to other areas of life? And it's things being more, perhaps more culturally denominated uh, than we readily like to think. But isn't that also true? And you say, you know, you might, Jan brought up the idea that you know, you're more interested in, perhaps they're not being pushed to be interested in what you rule out rather than what you rule in. But then if we take something like, what does the person conducting the experiment see based on their cultural background? And the this sort of famous sort of school textbook example is, in our Hansen, where there's a duck that could be a rabbit, depending whether you're more used to seeing ducks around you or rabbits, or indeed you might see something else entirely, I suppose. So do you take that seriously, Richard, that there is something about our experience, our pre-existing experience, however we try to screen it out, is likely to lead to some form of bias? Yes, I think that is true. I would pull back, however, from the sort of extreme cultural relativist position of, of sort of saying that everybody's entitled to their own truth and it's a cultural thing. But certainly there's a sort of understanding that, say, Japanese scientists may look at when they study primates, when they study monkeys in the, or apes in the field, they may see it a bit differently from the way uh, Westerners do because of cultural biases and maybe women will see things in a different way from men. That, that has to be taken on board. Do you take it more seriously after a lifetime in science and, and some perhaps of the trends in academia which emphasise that more than you did as a younger scientist? Well, I'm not sure of that. I've sort of been aware of it, I think, all my life. But the scientific method, if it's really done in a kind of pure way, I was talking about that earlier, ideally, we take the view that if an experiment is done in New York, say, and the same experiment is done in New Delhi, they'll get the same result. And if they don't get the same result, it's then up to us to then look at what was different in the way the experiment was done. Uh, so cultural biases ideally are kept out of it as much as possible. That is why uh, scientific papers have very lengthy methods sections in principle. So that the, so that the methods can be reproduced exactly. I mean, one of the problems is that in principle, this is all uh, fine and dandy, but in practice, there isn't really that much incentive for scientists to go on replicating other studies because that's not how scientific careers are advanced. So the sort of abstract scientific method is hard to fault on, to, on paper. In practice, it looks a little bit different. Do, do you feel that that is also a It's a, a big worry? problem, yes. It's a big problem. I mean, when the scientific finding is regarded as immensely important, like the allegation that neutrinos go faster than light, you can guarantee that's going to be repeated. I mean, these, something that's really controversial like that is going to be repeated. But the great majority of scientific experiments are probably never repeated because they're just not regarded as sufficiently controversial or worrying. And so that is a problem, and there's probably quite a lot of stuff out there in the scientific literature which, if it was repeated, would turn out not to be verified. 
I'm interested, Jan, in your experience reporting science for, for a long time. Do you think that's true? Is that outside academia? Does it matter? I mean, I suppose the suggestion is that you might have a lot of distortion that is still there in the in the undergrowth because experiments haven't been repeated or well, yeah, worthy, seen as worthy of going back to. The problem is that scientists are humans. Good gracious. Yeah, it is, it is sometimes hard to believe, but it, it is true. I guarantee that having spent a lot of time around them. They're humanists as well, but we'll, perhaps we'll get to that later. And as humans, they have their aims, they have their goals, they want to advance, they want to shine. Um, and the best way for a scientist to shine is to publish, especially striking results, especially in a high-impact, reputable journal. Uh, and these journals aren't that keen on publishing secondary research, such as repli- trying to replicate. Very true. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a big problem. And, and um, another problem is that is that what's called the drawer effect, where results that are boring, that there's a, you get a, ne- a negative result, nothing, nothing is shown, get put in a drawer and never published. And editors of scientific journals don't like publishing that. So there's probably an awful lot of times when a, an apparently positive finding is published but was statistically significant, which means that if you did the experiment, say, 100 times, you might expect to get that exciting result once in 100 times. Well, if 99 times are all put in a drawer, then you're going to get spurious statistical significance. That is another problem. I think there's a possible remedy for that, which is that scientific journals might require that before they publish a a paper, the experimental design the prospective, the intention to do the experiment is put on the internet so that people can, in principle, look up and see what actually happened to that experiment. Did it end up in a drawer? And that, I think, would solve the problem. You can't publish it on paper journals, but you could require a mandate that it has to go on the internet in advance. I'm going to bring you to uh, your broader topic, and I'd like to go back to the the, the title of, of your new book, and which author is going to object to that. It's Science in the Soul. Are you being a bit naughty when you put the soul in your book titles? You know, one of the world's uh, best known and perhaps feistiest atheists. I rather resent the way the word soul and words like spiritual are hijacked by the religious because... Didn't you hijack them from religion? Well, no, I think I think that if you think about, say, the writings of someone like Carl Sagan, where they, they are immensely soulful in the sense that he, he the, the cliche phrase is awe and wonder, and you feel a kind of lump in the throat almost sometimes when you look up at the, at the Milky Way. Um, I try to convey this in the opening introduction to the book, which is newly, which is not previously published, where I have a sort of reverie about it being in the Grand Canyon and looking up at the stars and then looking down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and, and feeling a kind of sense of spirituality. So I do make it very clear that I am not caving in to the idea of anything supernatural in the word soul. It's soul in... The Oxford Dictionary does give both senses, and so I imagine, and I, and I quote both, and I'm homing in on one of the two senses. You've got soul, but not in a god sense. Yeah. Yes, that looks so, desperate to no, come I'm, in, I'm, waving I'm, his I'm, hands. I am quite, I am quite interested in in this because communicating science is something that I try to do. In fact, you you write in, uh, in the, I think in that introduction, in fact, that it, it is perhaps high time that the Nobel Prize in literature goes to a science writer. I suppose the closest we got was Bertrand Russell, who like was a mathematician more than a scientist, and he got the the prize for more for his sort of humanist writings than than for than for um, than for his mathematical work, which is somewhat impenetrable. But could you explain why you feel that is? 
Yes, I mean, I, I don't think Bertrand, I think that perhaps the nearest approach to a scientist would be Henri Bergson, which is an even worse example, because he was, a, he was positively <laughs> mis- I tried reading, mystical. reading Bergson, um, and it's, yeah. It, his his it, it, élan vital was satirized by Julian Huxley, saying that a, a train is pulled by élan locomotif. Um, <laughs> if anyone's read it, get in touch. Move along, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, uh, sorry, what was it? Uh, no, no, so w- w- why, why do you think that, that, it's, that it's high time? Oh, for, well, if you think about... Nobel um, Prize in science. Oh, because, because science is, is such a wonderful vehicle for great literature, poetic literature. You've only got to think of, of say, Carl Sagan... Or I'm blocking on the name of that the famous Ascent of Man. Bronowski. Bronowski. Jacob Bronowski. Beautiful writer. Uh, Carl Sagan, beautiful writer. Elegant, poetic, moved poetically by science. And so I think that science actually is a proper vehicle for the Nobel Prize for literature. I have one follow-up question to this, and that's about the use of metaphors in science writing. I, I'm sort of somewhat wary of using metaphors very often because I feel that sometimes they, they obfuscate rather than clarify. I wrote quite a bit about particle physics for The Economist um, a few years back during the, you know, the hunt for the Higgs boson, in fact, the, the neutrino experiment that, that you mentioned earlier. And trying to explain quantum physics to lay people, people who do not have the mathematical apparatus, is extremely difficult. But I always found that actually using something that is akin to a metaphor always ends up making it sound like magic, which I think is sort of counterproductive if you want to try to explain science. In fact, I was always, I'm a big fan of of selfish of the selfish gene, but I was always a little bit worried that the selfish gene, which is a, a beautiful image. This uh, is Richard's previous book title. This is, this, is, this, is, this is one of the most famous books in, in science writing, in fact, possibly. It anthropomorphizes gene to the point of, of, sort of making people a little, perhaps a little bit more confused than they might. I, t- I take your point, and I've, I've made it myself, actually, often enough about, about metaphors. The selfish gene I don't regard as a metaphor, funnily enough. I think that's literally true in the, certain, in the particular sense of selfish that I define clearly. Blind watchmaker is a metaphor. I think it's a good one, but I totally agree with you that there are some times when metaphors actually do obscure rather than clarify. Let me ask the, the big question, because it, it behoves the, the, the non-scientists in the room to ask the most ambitious question. Do you think there are limits to scientific knowledge? Well, I think there probably might be in the sense that there may be questions that science can never answer. But what I would add to that, and it's important addition, is that if science can't answer them, nothing can. Well, that sounds like a bit of a council of despair. It's a bit like, you know, if you can't get what you want from my department, I'm sorry, no one well, else can help exactly. you. It, it's rather recognising with a kind of reverence that there may be some really deep questions, some really deep questions which even science can't answer. And that's why people say, oh, that'd be quite useful because God might slot in there or faith. Well, that, that of course, really is a cop-out because that, that, that's now saying, oh, theory A doesn't work, therefore theory B by default must, be, must, must work even though there's not the slightest evidence for theory B. But it might simply be that it is the theory is allowing a space beyond science. It doesn't necessarily have to prove that uh, God has a white man with a beard or some other form of being. A space beyond science is certainly possible, but to fill that space with not just a white man with a beard, which is a ridiculous cliche, of course, but, but any kind of supernatural, intelligent, creative being is unnecessary and superfluous. Yeah, and last, uh, last ball to you to build up Professor Dawkins. Many people will admit that, that science will not answer all questions and, well, first of all, it probably will not answer moral questions. But can it inform moral questions? Yes, I think um, 
Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, makes the, the, the case that it perhaps can, well, he would say even more than inform, I would agree, but it could inform moral questions. But I should add to the pre- what I said about pre- previously was that it was a concession to say that there may be deep questions that science can't answer. Many scientists don't accept that. I mean, many scientists think that science will actually answer all those deep questions. It seems to me that scientific knowledge is sort of limited in sort of purely mathematical terms. Scientific knowledge is limited by the by the f- finite nature of human beings and, and human thought. Up to a certain point in time, we can only have a finite knowledge. But ignorance is infinite. <laughs> yes. I mean, th- th- that, that would be a point that a, that a scientist might make of the, of the school of thought that says science cannot know everything. The reason we can't s- solve all the problems is that we are primates evolved on the African plains to understand medium-sized objects moving at medium speeds. And so it may be that the, the, the profundities of quantum theory, quantum gravity, it may always be beyond us because we are, we are primates. Other people disagree with that and say we are, in principle, able to understand everything. Where do you come down? I don't really come down. I have an open <laughs> mind. It's a nice final try there from Jan Piotrowski. Thank you very much. And, of course, Professor Richard Dawkins for joining us here on The Economist Asks. So what do you think? Can science save the world with objective truths? And where do values factor into that? Do tweet us your thoughts about the debate at Economist Radio. If you can't squeeze it all into a tweet, you can email us, radio at economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. The Economist. 